Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Here he comes. Here comes John Wayne. I'm not going to cry about my pa. I'm going to build an airport, put my name on it. Why, Michael? So you can fly away from your feelings. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, now that the APA, your organization, has said that being male is a disease, I just have <laughs> one question. Are we going to get some good drugs out of this? <laughs> um, uh, yes, they're going to actually, as, as, part of the, as part of the guidelines, estrogen therapy for all men. <laughs> Um, I was thinking more some Norco tens. You give me some Norco tens, and like my toxic masculinity just melts away. <laughs> the 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 listeners who are druggies like will get their mouth watering when they hear it. Like you can you can always tell who whoever has has enjoyed painkillers. Like if you bring if you bring up like, uh, like do you have any Watsons or like. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I got I got a little excited to hear you say Norco. <laughs> I know, like we might just have to stop right now and like go out and like. like thank God get... for kratom. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yes, and thank you to the listener who gave us all that helpful kratom advice. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Before we get into that, we will talk about that in the first segment. We should just say, because we always forget to do this, that on today's episode we will be talking about. Uh, uh, notes from Underground. This will be the first of a two-part episode on Notes from Underground by Dostoevsky. Oh, God, we're probably going to have to announce the results of the vote. <laughs> uh, in the second segment, we make a bet about what percentage of listeners... Ha we've already recorded that. So in the second segment, we make a bet of what percentage of listeners have read Notes from Underground. I bet a little high. I said over fifty yeah. percent, and I was, and Dave bet lower than that, and he won, and he won fairly significantly. It was, I think, it ended at like twenty-five or twenty-six percent, yeah. something like that. Seventy-five to twenty-five. We, you know, with all the caveats of the nature of a scientific Twitter poll, <laughs> but yeah, you you thought like most actually. You know, I feel like you you, you your gut was telling you over fifty percent. Um, yeah. I'm but I'm I'm disillusioned. I don't know what to say. Fortunately, <laughs> me losing the bet wasn't that bad. No, now we get to record Pulp Fiction. When are we going to do that? Yeah, we got to do it. Flash episode on Pulp Fiction coming <laughs> soon. 
I really have to rewatch it for the 38th time. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, thank you for your Twitter support for once again, hashtag David was right. But before we get to that, let's, let's talk about, about being a man. What's what <laughs> traditional masculine ideology. Okay. So the APA, the American Psychological Association, every once in a while, they issue these guidelines for clinicians. So, so the APA is, uh, largely made up of of practicing clinical psychologists people who actually do therapy um there's obviously the experimental and the other scientific psychologists in it but more of those are in our other organization apa is really really um for historical reasons kind of dominated by the clinical side of things and they every once in a while uh publish practice guidelines so it's basically like you're a practicing clinical psychologist and you might be providing therapy to uh, a client or patient who you don't know much about their background and their experience. So in the past, they've published guidelines uh, for specific populations uh, like gay, lesbian, bisexual clients, racial and ethnic minority clients, older adults, and girls and women. So the Girls and Women was published in 2007. It's just a bunch of information based on the research um, and advice for how to, like, what are the common problems you might, you might see in a population like this? What's, what's the background that you might not be aware of that, you know, what are the particular mental and physical health uh, issues that these, the, this population is more likely to face um, relative to, to other populations? So they just in, published a guideline for psychological practice with boys and men. And there was a bit of a kerfuffle. At first, I thought it was a psychological analysis of how to deal with boys to men. But then... <laughs> I still got uh, it. Yes. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Moving on. Um, so so I, this upset some people. I, I think some of the um, the reaction was some accusation or fear that uh the american psychological association was um was basically pathologizing masculinity um right because this is the document itself which is available online for everybody which we'll put a link to is uh f- focused largely on on masculinity and and, uh, and what it says often the the way it describes it is traditional masculine ideology right so actually i'll read the the one sentence where they even define um what they mean here um masculine masculinity ideology is a set of descriptive prescriptive and proscriptive of cognition about boys and men uh, although there are differences in masculinity ideologies, there is a particular constellation of standards that have held sway over large segments of the population, including anti-femininity, achievement, eschewal, eschewal, of, eschewal, eschewal yeah. of the appearance of weakness and adventure, risk, and violence. These have been collectively referred to as traditional masculinity ideology. Um, so that is sort of their target, like okay, you're, you're a practicing clinician, you have to deal with men. What are some of the things that you should look out for in treating men? What are some of the causes uh, of, of mental illness that might be 
specific to men. Um, now, I get why why it might sound like this is pathologizing m- male traits, right? So to include, for instance, anti-femininity and adventure seeking right. in in the same constellation is is ki- kind of sounds like a a very sort of uh, politically oriented attack on what what many people might view as a positive set of traits. You know, I talked about this in my book that because there is there was this psychologist at Oklahoma who was writing about honor ideology, what he called and also but he uh, explicitly referred to it as a kind of pathology. And one of the things that he was saying as a negative aspect of the honor orientation is that it leads to more adventure seeking and that they were higher in risk, uh, risk taking, irrational risk taking. But then when you looked at how they defined adventure, you know, like the excessive risk, uh, risk taking, it included things like bungee jumping, backcountry camping, um, walking home alone at night. Uh, it was like, you know, so there is this concern. I am sensitive to the concern of taking things that should, that are certainly open to question whether they're bad or good and turning them into something that is a problem that needs to be treated. Right. So the, if that is in fact what, what is going on in this document, I, you know, would, would be a bit concerned too. So let me t- just tell you what I did. I, I saw the kerfuffle, like a, a lot of people complaining about this. Um, and I said, well, and, and we got some, some requests to, to talk about it. What I tried to do is read, go to the original document without, any of the, without reading any of the criticisms. Go to into the extent it fresh. That I, yeah, to the extent that I could go into it fresh. Even like, you know, putting my cards on the table, go probably going into it with a lot more sympathy than the complaints. Um, but in particular, I wanted to see what, like what research they were talking about. Um, like w- what the point was, what their conclusions were, and what was this really an attack on masculinity and men um, in, a, in a way that should, sh- should... And I just found right now... <laughs> um, an article uh, saying that the APA's masculinity guidelines now are facing a Title IX challenge. Um, so there's been a Title IX complaint from uh, somebody at Harvard University. Um, so they filed a Title IX complaint against Harvard University on Thursday, arguing that a Title IX violation exists by way of Harvard's relationship to the APA, according to the complaint. All Harvard psychologists are informed by the APA code and that essentially this is actually uh, leading men to get treated in a biased manner, um, <laughs> therefore unfair. So I have a lot of, I have a lot of thoughts ab- about this document specifically, um, but I wanted to get your, like, what's your general sense? Like you read a little bit about it. You read the background. I don't think you read the actual document, right? I, I read, I looked through it. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't have strong feelings about it one way or the other, really. You know, it seems there are parts of it that are 
doing what people worry about, pathologizing certain masculine traits. I think there's a sympathetic way of understanding it, which is they're worried about men and the high rates of suicide among uh, men as relative to women. They're worried about certain destructive behaviors, to self-destructive and also destructive to others. And they're offering clinicians ways of approaching men who have some of these traits and where some of those traits are leading them in a bad direction. I also like I have a very I also understand why some people are reacting to certain aspects of the document and like I said there's parts of it that I um object to. I I will say that a couple things the calling masculinity an ideology and I know that that's there's a big tradition in doing that. I it's it strikes me as something that's odd and not clear to me that it's grounded in something real, or at least not as I understand the term ideology. That's the first yeah. thing. And then the second thing, this is a criticism, you know, that that Pinker has raised against it, and it's one that you might expect him to raise, that it is assuming the dogma of the blank slate that rejects biological and genetic factors. Um, this is a quote from him. The word testosterone appears nowhere in the report, yeah. and the possibility that men and women's personalities differ for biological reasons is unsayable and unthinkable. And and there the rhetoric might be exaggerated, but it's true. There is no real mention of any kind of genetic basis or biological basis, I should say, for some of these differences. And I don't know, that seems like an omission, but I wanted your take on that because I could also see a reply saying, well, look, that's what we're not talking about the causes of this. We're talking about, you know, how to deal with right. what it is. But they don't talk like that. They the first guideline, right, is that masculinity is socially constructed. Yeah. So yeah. I didn't I didn't see that comment from Pinker, but it was it was glaring. Um the the omission was glaring. They have one <laughs> I, I found one sentence where they say something about the complex set of factors that are involved in it and they just do a laundry list of you know social uh, economic and they they put the word biological in there um that was that was the one mention so i okay like first the like oh, the good of it i like i think that that reading this does not muster too much outrage in me at all because it's a it's a fairly balanced uh document in the sense that it is not it's going out of its way not to condemn aspects of of masculinity at least not in the way that people are are strawmanning it like i don't i wonder how many people have actually read it um and a little bit right like the even some people have I've heard comments like, uh, what if the APA published guidelines on how to treat girls and women? And it's like, well, yeah, they did, right? Like you're missing the point. That is exactly, they've exactly done that. And one of the reasons that they published this is because they thought that uh, men were getting short shrift, that a lot of attention is, has been given to the special needs of various other populations. Um, racial ethnic minorities, women, uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual. 
and that men were have particular needs themselves and that they were being left out. So I think to read this in good faith, you have to like acknowledge that these by and large are people who are trying to help whoever they are uh, treating and that they think that men face specific problems that are worth pointing out as specific to men. But specific that, to a certain kind of man, like the yeah. kind of, the, the, who embraces this, this idea of what a man should be. Right. So this is, they go out of their way, the authors of this document, multiple times to say, um, we're, we actually are talking about masculinities, plural, um, in that there are a whole bunch of different, uh, different aspects of whatever psychology that might be labeled masculinity. And this might differ across cultures and all that. It's, it's actually it is super wishy-washy. Like you never get a sense that they are coming down firmly on anything. The caveats from like are, are longer. They make up more of the document than the actual statements themselves. It's so like a philosophy it, paper. It's yeah. Except for that, <laughs> that this is where like, if, if the criticism is that politic, like politically correct language, like sort of the fear of offending somebody is, uh, is interfering well, like it's, it's very much interfering in the flow, in the flow of the writing um, for this. So, like, whenever they they dare make any any uh, claim about men being different, um, they say, "Well, but we acknowledge that not all men are are like this, and we acknowledge that this might differ substantially across culture, and we acknowledge that the experience of gay men or transgender." Uh, men are different they they like add a whole paragraph saying like basically preempting any criticism about their general statement so they'll make general statements and then fill it with a bunch of of caveats so that you actually don't get a sense that they're willing to say anything actually general uh, about about men but the second good thing i was going to say about it is that that they point out something that that is i think clearly true which is that um men do have like the, like we die earlier, <laughs> like but for all sorts of reasons we die earlier. We you know ninety percent of the people in prison are men, right? It's very obvious that that men um, are more likely to engage in violence, suicide, of, addiction, su- like suicide and addiction. Yeah, so more more completion uh, of suicides, even though uh, women attempt it more. There are all kinds of reasons to think that that uh, you might want to focus on on these problems. So, uh, so like, there's th- th- what puzzled me is that there could be a way in which like a men's rights activist, right? Like, it's like a <laughs> could could read this as as something good, as something like yeah, like men we're get we're getting ignored by all of these like super liberal like concerns about all the protected classes and nobody's actually looking out for for just your average white masculine dude and i don't see how uh you you couldn't at least ascribe some of that desire that that positive intention in this document given how often they talk about about really trying to deal with the fact that men suffer in disproportionate rates from these things that we've just mentioned but all right. So all that said, and uh, like, and the document itself is nuanced in a way that they say, 
Okay, okay. You've said you've made all your caveats. Can you yeah. just get to your Okay. Thing? The 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 shitty part of this document is that it is conceptually all over the place. It's never clear uh what they mean specifically by masculinity other than that one sentence we talked about. Um all the caveats make it sound like they're saying both uh, men are like this and men it's a mistake to think that all men are like this. It's unclear whether they're talking about actual traits of men or they're talking about stereotypes that people hold about men. So at, on the one hand, they're talking about like men getting treated uh, unfairly because of the stereotypes about how men are. And on the other hand, they're talking about the actual differences in men, say like about emotions and emotionality. Um, it, uh, on Pinker's point, they never talk about the actual causes. They never specifically lay out whether or not the cross-cultural research shows that, um, say, emotional suppression is true for men across all cultures. Like, it, they never, right? Like, you would have a very different approach to treating something if it were um, the case that in, in the U.S., it happens to be that men are taught to not show emotions, but in Italy, they're taught to be very emotional. Um, there's no, no real discussion about that. There's no discussion. There's no acknowledgement, as Pinker says, of the, the heavy role that testosterone plays in, in aggression, violence. Um, and those biological differences are clearly endorsed un indirectly. Like when they talk about, about the differences in men, like it's pretty clear in many cases that they're talking about these biological differences, but they're afraid to say it. And often they say things that sound like the opposite of that, talking about the social construction, yeah. socially they, constructed nature of masculinities. and Over and over again, they'll say something and unsay it. They'll say something and say the opposite. But um, in this case, talk, they don't really say the opposite. They just, they focus, when they say anything at all about the causes, it's usually focused right, right. on the social construction. They, whenever they explicitly mention something, they, yeah, they, they say, they keep referring to the social construction. They spend weirdly... Uh, way more time talking about um, uh, when they make a statement about, about men and masculinity, they'll uh, dedicate so much time to uh, why this might not be true for uh, gay men or for men of different ethnicities or uh, for transgender men. They, they spend so much time talking about that, that it really does read as if they're afraid of, of saying anything that will offend anybody like they it's it reads so poorly and so sloppy um because they're afraid to say anything like endorse that if you really think that men are emotionally stifled dedicate a whole section to all of the research showing that like men actually suppress their emotion more often than women and you know what like those gender differences aren't that strong like those are more like stereotypes right like if you actually look at the literature on the experience of emotionality. Like, I, I don't think the gender differences are that strong, but they don't go into that. They just, they're saying, it's a lot, a whole lot of saying nothing. So like, I can't even get mad at anything they're saying because they're saying such, such, just not like nothing there. So here's what I think is fueling the backlash and preventing people from taking a more sympathetic view of at least their intentions. I think it comes across as having a like a one flew over the cuckoo's nest you're taking a person who now society has deemed their behavior to not be in line with what society and the ruling classes want and so you are turning his natural 
behavior into something that is a pathology that needs to be treated and that needs to be cured. And in the end, we're all going to be subject to electroshock therapy and, you know, have a, a, a large Native American man put a pillow over our head killing us because they can't bear to see us like this. That's, I think, the fear that yeah. is is driving. And so the idea is if you want to the issue and I and I don't say I'm not defending this perspective, um, but the idea is men would be fine if you weren't trying to turn us all into if you're if you yep. if you weren't trying to turn us into lobotomized like uh androgynous uh creatures like that like it's so it's it's more society's fault that men are struggling and now you're trying to cure natural uh male traits i, I again i don't think this is a fair way of looking at this document but i do think it's it's driving some of the backlash and it's driving some of the resentment against it. Yeah. It's funny because I was reading, looking out for that kind of language and because they are, because they were, were so wishy-washy, I almost, by the end, I wanted to hear something like that. Like, I think it might not be a uh, crazy thing to say that, um, uh, you know what, like, Aggression and competition have been traits that have that were adaptive for for men. And now in modern society, um, the degree of of violent impulses and aggression that you see in men is no longer beneficial. And in fact, leads to short ass lives because of heart disease, because anger causes. Right. Like so we should treat we should teach men to to better regulate these tendencies. If they were have said that, I would have respected the document a bit more. Right. The fact that like there is just all, all all there is, is is this sort of circling around this problem without ever addressing it. Um, then I at least think that you could have a real disagreement. You could say, well, to what extent is it a problem in modern society to be aggressive and dominant or desire to be dominant? Right. Um, and when under what conditions does it actually harm people? Like, I think it's perfectly plausible that that being taught to not show any emotions can fuck with your relationships later right. in life. Yeah. Um, and just, that's so just, clearly true of of some people and most uh, and it does seem more prevalent among men. And that's what actually another thing that I'd like to see. Is it just the stereotype? Because I, I know a lot of yeah. women who suppress emotion quite a bit. Right? Right. I would like to know whether or not this is if, if that's at the heart of the problem. Like I want to know, well, should we just treat like failures to process emotions properly and and not do not say that it is a male problem? Like it's sort of endorsing stereotypes weirdly. But then, you know, there's this other aspect of masculinity that you might think is positive. This idea that actually controlling your emotions is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. And that if you keep flaring up with anger and accepting your anger rather than trying to keep it under control or even keeping it down and repressing it, Pinker actually talks about this too. He calls it the second dogma of the report is that repressing emotions is bad and expressing them is good. Uh, he says that is contradicted by a large literature showing that people with greater self-control, uh, particularly those who repress anger rather than venting, lead healthier lives, they get better grades, have fewer eating disorders, drink less. I don't see how this is good. Uh, have fewer psychosomatic aches and pains and are less depressed, anxious, phobic, and paranoid. 
have higher self-esteem. I don't know to what extent any of that is true, but it does strike me. And again, I, I'm not one of those people that represses emotions. People yeah. around me wish I would repress emotions more, but <laughs> it I could see it being an open question whether that's necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. And there are like, there's a good, there's a big literature on emotion regulation and the different strategies. Like it's not either, or it's not either like, you know, fly off the handle or never talk about your emotions. Sometimes it is finding ways to cope with, with emotions in, in healthier ways um, that don't fall neatly into the the two. And I, I can see why, like, you know, I didn't read the report on women and girls, but there, you do get the sense that it would be probably not something in that document to say that like women traditionally let their emotions get, let, take the best of like, get the best of them. And so in therapy, just make note that like, it's unhealthy for them to be so emotional. Get like, yourself that, under control. Bro. Yeah. That, um, that it wouldn't, you wouldn't see, see such claims made. Um, here, for instance, they, in this document, they talk about, um, uh, that traditional masculinity ideology discourages men from being intimate with others and is the primary reason men tend to have fewer close friends than women. And right. It, it might be that failure to express your emotions does lead you to a more lonely life, which ties maybe into notes from underground. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like the, the which we life. should get to. Yeah. Which actually there is a, there is, there is a link there, I think. And there was also a link as you mentioned earlier, to to notions of honor, which are often tied in with with masculine ideals, though not always. Um, whether or not there are true differences between male and female, or men and women, in some of these traits, um, the idea that men are like have to conform to some of these ideals, like being a coward is is a horrible, horrible thing. If you're a man, like force majeure would be a different movie if the protagonist was a woman, right? It's not. It's just like, yeah. so, but so it would be a movie. It, it would, would be a, a different movie. movie. It would be a different movie. Maybe there is a lot to to be said about uh, uh, changing society's views about what men ought to be because nobody can be Gary Cooper, right? Like, um, so may, maybe trying to be like that is is bad for us. But I don't know that it's a special problem. Like, I think everybody has expectations. I I, I don't know. I don't know. I I, I think. Th- this this document is not worth much. In to, in the guidelines for girls and women, does it talk about the tendency to be shrill? <laughs> <laughs> I think that was edited out because they don't want to <laughs> offend anybody. I mean, I'm curious to read them. Um, I I can see. I mean, I put money on that. There's very very careful language in that as well. But I I both can't. I can't be outraged by this document. But that's because I find that it's not saying anything. It does seem like it's a no-win document. Yeah. Like there's really nothing it could do and not piss off like multiple different camps of people. Yeah. And it's also a little unclear why they're doing the document. Like why yeah. release this? But I guess the idea, the, the the best thing I read that somebody I can't remember where this where I saw this. It was an interview with one of the people, and they say, "Look, we're putting all this stuff out there." For because exactly to get responses, to get critics to react to it and tell us what 
how to improve it. And that's why we put it out there. There's sort of an implicit recognition that they might be in a kind of bubble where certain ideas are just accepted about Uh, Because you see like the stuff about traditional masculine ideology, there's always a bunch of different citations where people just take for granted that there is this ideology. And and so the best thing you could say about it is they are opening themselves up to this for the express purpose of improving it and making it something that is helpful to the people who are treating patients. Yeah, Um, I I. The point that you made at the very beginning, the assumption that this is an ideology is something that I wish they had fleshed out because like the parts that are ideology and that are culture cultural and that might actually be affecting men because of the beliefs of society, like, for instance, the uh, reluctance to get treatment, um, the reluctance to seek treatment because you're perceived as weak, that that might be something that's that's really really important right like men not seeking uh mental health treatment is is probably is a problem it sucks though that in framing it this way i feel like men are going to be wary that they're going to be treated pathologically like even though this document i don't think it says it so in this title nine uh this article about this title nine uh case the person who's filing it says that um Using APA's guidelines, Harvard University has adopted bias training materials which rely upon sex stereotypes, and that in doing so, the school discourages men from seeking counseling services. No reasonable male person would seek counseling at a clinic where his sex is considered to be a form of mental illness or a driving factor for mental illness, which I think is a really poor reading of the document. But if that's what comes out of it, then that sucks because that's the whole like part of their stated goal is to get men to... You actually- know what? The right reaction to uh, the fact that there are a lot of bullshit Title IX lawsuits isn't to make your own bullshit Title IX lawsuit, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, like, I'm not sure. I don't even know where people stand anymore. So this person is upset that there are sex stereotypes being used, um, but that person would probably, like, in another discussion, argue that there are real biological differences and they're not just stereotypes. So, like, I don't know which one you want. <laughs> I know. There's a lot of strange bedfellows that these debates uh, that these debates make. Um, all right. Well, that's the best we can do on this. When we come back, we will talk about a man who is definitely suffering from a kind of pathology <laughs> and issues with masculinity, although they don't typically involve not expressing emotions. So, uh, yeah, we'll be right back. Today's episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you in part by a new sponsor uh, that actually I'm really excited about. It's Eero. Uh, Eero is a Wi-Fi router, basically, but it's a different kind of Wi-Fi router, one that works a lot better than the traditional sort because it creates a mesh network. So what this means is that if you have a house like Tamler has, for instance, where Wi-Fi can't get to hard to reach spots, Eero is a router that creates a bunch of little uh, spots that connect to each other, allowing you to blanket your whole house in in internet in places where you couldn't otherwise. And so Tamler, you actually got one because you have 
A garage uh, apartment. A garage apartment, yeah. right? So we've often talked about recording there and how your Wi-Fi is bad. Yeah, I don't know what he means by mesh network, <laughs> but what I do know is I could not get Wi-Fi reliably at all in the garage apartment. I have a very small house, and then I have this garage apartment, so I've always been recording in the main house. Now I have the zero, and our garage apartment is has great Wi-Fi. I mean, like it's it's the difference is night and day, and it's rare that a sponsor will actually change the way, like the course of the podcast, but it will. I now can record in the garage apartment. My family doesn't have to hear when we record. Well, it gives us a lot more freedom when we can record. It's great. And you set it up, right? I I set it up in like yeah, and I and I know I'm not tech savvy but i set it up in 20 minutes at most like it was really really easy they have a very nice uh setup system there's also eero plus uh eero plus offers the ability to block malicious and unwanted content across your entire network it provides advanced security by checking sites you visit against a database of a millions of known threats eero plus prevents you from accidentally visiting malicious sites without slowing anything down it has content blocking for your kids. It automatically tags sites that contain violent, illegal, or adult content, so you can choose what your kids can and cannot visit in the Eero app. And it has ad blocking, getting rid of annoying ads and pop-ups on all your devices. That improves load time for heavy ad, for ad-heavy sites so you can browse and stream faster than ever before. So here's the offer. Never think of Wi-Fi again. Get $100 off the Eero base unit and two beacons package and one year of Eero Plus. To do that, visit Eero.com, E-E-R-O.com slash VeryBadWizards and at checkout, enter VeryBadWizards. That's Eero.com slash VeryBadWizards and at checkout, enter VeryBadWizards for $100 off the Eero base unit and two beacons package and one year of Eero Plus. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Um, this is the time of the show where we like to thank our wonderful listeners for all of their support, for all of their communication to us. Uh, we really appreciate it all. If you do want to get a hold of us for any reason, complain, give us ideas for a show, um, give us links to cool shit that we can talk about, please do. You can do it by emailing us verybadwizards at gmail.com or you can just tweet to us at verybadwizards or at tamler or at peas. You can um, join in the lively discussions on the subreddit 
join our Facebook discussions. Um, you can even follow us on Instagram at Very Bad Wizards. We really rate us on iTunes. Also. Oh yeah, rate us on iTunes. We haven't write a review in a while. Write yeah. a review. Uh, and if you want to support us in more tangible ways, we also really appreciate that too. It's what's kept this show going for so long. As much as we do it for the love, because of course it's a lot of work and we do love what we do, um, it really does help us if you can support us in any way possible. You can find all of those ways by going to our verybadwizards.com and clicking on the support page. You can either um, shop at Amazon, no cost to you. You could just follow the link, buy as you normally would, and we get a little piece of it. Um, you can donate to us via PayPal one-time donation or even a recurring one and finally you can uh, support us via patreon and if you do sign up for uh, our patreon become one of our patrons you get some cool additional stuff um, additional content additional content um, and Tamler, you wanted to talk a little bit about patreon well just that uh, right now our i think we're in the last couple last few days maybe we'll leave it up for one or two more days after this episode comes out of our patreon members suggesting topics for an episode and then you and i probably in the opening segment for the next episode will select a list of finalists for uh our five dollar and up our beloved five dollar and up patrons to vote and they will vote on one of those five or six finalists and that will be an episode that we do that that topic but like uh, this time can we just pick one that where where tamler has to do all the research <laughs> it's true <laughs> they have they have focused more heavily on you i think that's just because they know that i always do most of the research <laughs> mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. they're trying to balance it out they're fair-minded group uh <laughs> one quick thing that i wanted to say um because this will air in time perhaps um i tweeted this out but uh for our annual social psychology conference uh society for personality and social psychology that's to be held in portland at the beginning of february um michael Sargent, host of the tattered podcast put together a symposium to talk about podcasting and scholarship podcasting is a form of scholarship and yoel imbar uh formerly friend of the show um and now host of four the four beers Two Psychologists, Four Beers podcast. BFF with my stepmother. Uh, yeah, and uh, and Alexa Tullett uh, from the, the Black Goat podcast. Uh, we're all going to be on a panel um, there. If you're going to the conference, say what's up, attend the panel. But uh, we'd really love to hear any questions you might have, because I don't know what to talk about. All right, let's get to Notes from Underground by Fyodor Dostoevsky. It's considered, I guess, his first novel from his later period that includes all the Dostoevsky novels that you've heard of, like Crime and Punishment and Demons and Brothers Karamazov and The Idiot. And this is the first in that period. And what's interesting about it, I mean, it, there's no struggle to find philosophical themes in this, but it's written in response to a historical movement that was taking place in Russia at the time, and a book by, and I'm not going to pronounce this right, Nikolai G. Chernyshevsky, this kind of utopian novel, What is to be Done, that had appeared in the spring of 1863, which is just a f 
I think six months before this was published. And he was originally Dostoevsky going to write a review of it, but couldn't mm. get write a review. <laughs> we we certainly can relate to that feeling. He couldn't he, he couldn't get himself to actually write the review, and and this is instead the sort of the form that his response took. So even though it's it's tailored towards a very specific time and place and a and a very specific p- position, which we'll talk about, it has never failed to seem relevant. And this was right. true. You know, in the early in the twenties, in especially in the time of the existentialists, who claimed the underground man as paradigm of the existentialist um, idea of, or value uh, involving freedom. And I think today, I mean, you know, having reread it, I hadn't read it in ten, fifteen years. Having reread it, I, I was struck by how it it kind of sounds like, and this is especially true in part one that he is reacting against this kind of, you know, utilitarian, technocratic fantasy of, the, you know, human beings becoming good and, and happy by following these rules that science and reason have discovered. This could just be a reaction against that mindset. Yeah, so this is something that everybody, I think responds to and um i think you don't think i think most of our listeners have already read it at some point in their lives because it's just such a classic it's such it's 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 you know it also has elements of like college being a college kid or in your early 20s angry and alienated and you know there's so much here that is relatable so i'm going to do a twitter poll because i think that uh this is this is a case of uh, projecting. Would you want to bet? Uh, yeah. What's what are we? What would we bet? If I you win, think most. I you think, think most, most over fifty so percent. If, if it's over fifty percent, uh, uh, you re- agree to rewatch Straw Dogs. <laughs> oh fuck! What if I win then? Well, you got to decide that. We we immediately do a flash episode on Pulp Fiction. Fine. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So the it will be a Twitter poll. How long do we leave it? Two days. Sure. And we got to do it before this episode. Before they know it's a bet, right? Yes. Before this gets Uh, released. Uh oh yeah, because because they might be motivated one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if if first of all, I think a a there's no way that a plurality of or majority have have read any Dostoevsky, and if they have read Dostoevsky, it would be. Brothers Karamazov or Crime and Punishment. Okay. I think. Yeah. <laughs> I think I clearly have a higher opinion of our listeners than you do, but uh, you've always yeah. had contempt you, this, for them. This is why Trump won, because you underestimated how many normal people are, are in the country, <laughs> how many normal people are listeners of ours. Your, your hoity-toitiness is... Uh... <laughs> I agree that this is why Trump won, but it's because <laughs> you elites disdain the common person. <laughs> Oh, you're such an elitist. Oh, by the way, uh, and we can cut this and add it to the intro. When your mom, your stepmom went on Robert Wright's thing and blasted you for all of your hoity-toityness, going to Tahiti and reading whatever, whatever, I was like, oh my God, there goes any dream that you have of being considered sort of a, a non-elite everyday, 
everyday working okay. man's kind of man. First of all, uh, if you're listening, Christina, <laughs> and I love you, stop putting my personal shit out on in public. Hey, man, I'm glad she did. She's Thank been you, doing it. She's been doing this since I was in college. Thank you, uh, Christina. She, we get to know the real Tamler because you hide. You I, I, I didn't. I didn't hide that. Me. I think I've probably said that. Um, that I had this time, but that, you know, this was not family money. This was me <laughs> camping and going, ah, it was great. It was, and, and actually not reading Somerset Mom at that time. She got the periods confused. But <laughs> Thank you, Christina, for the honesty. No. Um, <laughs> Keep my personal right. shit out of like your podcast and just my <laughs> life. Like, she, I swear to God, like in college, when I, I when I was studying abroad, and just don't even make a comment about that. She she went to my student newspaper and bitched about like comments on my paper that I had gotten in English class by like a like two feminist professor or something like that. And then I come back and everybody's making fun of me because my mom complained about my grade. That's how it was spun in you know the, among my friends. Um, back to the book. Um, yeah. I think this is a trite point, but obviously, like the historical context matters and all. But this wouldn't be a great work if it if one couldn't read it devoid of context and get something universal from it. And that I always, when I read something like Dostoevsky, and I love Dostoevsky, but although I haven't read this probably since college, it's this keen understanding of human nature that, even though I guiltily sort of knew nothing about Russian culture. Russian history, and I know that it's he's very much a product of his time. Um, Dostoevsky, to me, was one of the reasons that I really got interested in psychology. I yeah. thought that he just captures, especially neuroticism, um, just captures this 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 aspect of certain aspect of the human spirit that's so good, so and, good. And the hyper self consciousness, yeah, is, is real. I don't think there's any character in literature that that expresses that feeling when you're just inside your head way oh, yeah. too much about everything and it's it's both paralyzing and uh, anxiety inducing and agitating agitating is the right word it is agitating to its core before we get too much in talking about it do you want to just lay out the the structure of these two parts and just give a little overview um sure you want me to or you want to? Yeah, well, I mean, I can, although you might be better prepared. The first part, you could almost read as a idiosyncratic work of philosophy. It's, um, it's, it's about a man. We never learn his name. He's just turned 40, although he thinks it's bad manners to live past 40. Uh, <laughs> that, that part hurt. I know. And, and he's writing what, seem, what, what seems like in part one some sort of reaction against this utopian rationalist vision that, you know, has connections with utilitarianism and has connections with Plato. This idea that once science and reason can fully understand human nature, that we will always just act in ways that are beneficial for us and beneficial for society. He is rebelling both against the deterministic aspect of this view um, and also against this idea that we should always do what's in our rational self-interest 
And, you know, again, in a very comic and idiosyncratic way, it seems like a, a philosophical objection to that view that had become popular, not just in Russia, but this is something that's going on in Europe at that time. Um, and so this first part is all first person. It's all stream of consciousness kind of kind of writing. You, and it's like a dialogue little... too. Like he. Oh, uh, you know what? It's very Mister Robot. A little bit, yes. Yeah, that's a good. That's that's right. I yeah, didn't think of that, but I think that's he's breaking the fourth wall or whatever you call it in literature. <laughs> he, he very much so. So opening lines, very famous opening lines. I am a sick man. I am a spiteful man. An unattractive man. Yeah. And yeah, he's talking to us as we're readers. Oh, speaking of fourth wall, um, those actually aren't the opening lines. The opening line is that right. Dostoevsky footnote. Yeah. Which is the I author think, of the notes. Yeah. The, and the notes themselves are, of course, imaginary. Yeah. Nevertheless, it is clear that such persons as the writer of these notes not only may, but positively must exist in our society when we consider the circumstances in the midst of which our society is formed. I have tried to expose to the view of the public more distinctly than is commonly done, one of the characters of the recent past, he is one of the representatives of a generation still living in this fragment entitled Underground. This person introduces himself and his views and, as it were, tries to explain the causes owing to which he has made his appearance and was bound to make his appearance in our midst. In the second fragment, there added the actual notes of this person concerning certain events of his life. So Dostoevsky's footnote uh, here begins the text and also ends the text and that seems very significant, and especially some of the language there, you know, not only may, but positively must exist in our society and right. how he is bound. There's all sorts of, like, these meta-textual sort of interplays with the underground man's own stories. So just really quickly, then, part two, which I think we're going to do this in two episodes because there's so much to talk about. So in part two... He talks about three specific memories that, that sort of continue to obsess him. The second one is, is really rough. It is a story of him kind of inviting himself to a dinner of these four friends who he doesn't respect and feels both insecure and superior and contemptuous of, um, but also feels very resentful towards and jealous of and... And he invites himself to a dinner, gets very drunk, and has about the most... It, this is like... You know what this reminded me of? is like the British office. It was like squ <laughs> yeah. squirmy humor, kind of. Like, just so uh, humiliating. And he and, and just, just kept digging himself deeper and deeper. And he couldn't help it. Like, he couldn't help but dig himself deeper and deeper. So it's both funny and also really just... You know, like it's squirmy. It's, it's just awkward and painful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's <laughs> it does such a good job of capturing that feeling of someone digging themselves into a deeper and deeper hole. The, and, your worst experiences in high school or something is what I thought yeah. of. You know, um, and then the thir the last is his interaction <laughs> that same night and subsequent days with this prostitute Eliza, which you get the sense is the real thing that got him to write these notes mm -hmm. and the real sort of engine behind what he's doing right now you know i think there's so much to talk about in the first part which i want to talk about like the philosophy but i think 
Then when you re read the second part and then you realize that this all happened 15 years before, something like that. that before he's, he writes it. Before he's writing the first yeah. part, you see it in a new light. Yeah, right. So, so the first part being this sort of first person stream of consciousness, it does introduce a whole bunch of ideas that are, as you say, a bit elucidated once we learn that person's character in part two, but are pretty good standalone as well. Like, I don't think this would suffer as a piece of literature had part two never come about. We would have filled in the gaps about who this is, but maybe not. I mean, maybe yeah. it does add. I think you think that it adds value. Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely adds value as a work of art, but I also think the way you, this is where we disagree. Like, I think the way you understand part one at first is changed when you read part two. So if you just had part one, you would understand part one differently. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, the, the first thing that I get from this, and maybe this is from having read other Dostoevsky is, uh, spiteful. I cannot imagine that there's a, that, that that word would be anything else. I mean, this guy is, seems to be full of bile yeah. and it's the worst kind of full of bile because he seems full of bile and full of himself. It is somebody who is petty, somebody who is, who, who at the same time thinks that everybody thinks about him and mourns the fact that nobody pays attention to him right so he views every every interaction with other human beings he imbues it with some importance that those interactions can't possibly have he's benny blanco from the bronx right he's he, in in uh, it all it always comes back to benny blanco it always comes back to benny blanco it's it's uh somebody probably unwittingly ignores him and this is identity shaking yeah uh, it must it must have been that they hate me and that this is why they so clearly did this on purpose and and so you you it's it's full of contradictions explicit contradictions in his own writing i mean this it also reads to me like uh the ramblings of an incel yeah like, <laughs> no totally like an alienated young man who just isn't, for whatever reason, able to fit in social situations, it always <laughs> finds themselves kind of either humiliated actively, like, or worse, just ignored and, you know, not noticed, uh, which right. is the thing that seems to bother the underground man the most. Right, and he takes the not noticing as an active as an active antipathy toward him. And it's right. because it seems to be because he cannot see a world in which he's not central to that world. And the world is purposefully ignoring him rather yeah. than nobody gives a shit. Yeah. Um, there are a couple but of things. But it's like an insult to be ignored in a society where other people aren't being ignored. Right. So it is an insult to some degree. At least you get the sense in some t at some points, like this is a sign of a certain lack of respect. Yeah, no, yeah. you're right. In fact, honor, honor, some notion of honor plays a large role in this. And I really wanted to get your thoughts on this because to yeah. me, this is a patholo pathological sense of, of what honor is. And, and the reason that I say that is um, you do get the sense that he's ignored, but what you, so one, he, he reads a lot of omission 
I'm sorry, he reads a lot of commission in what are clearly just acts of omission. Like people walking by him in the street, he takes as an insult because... Um, but two, he doesn't seem to, you know, in a society like this, a gajillion people are ignored and all he's looking at is like, you know, the officers right above him who seem to get more respect. He treats, and we'll learn maybe, Yes, <laughs> we learned this in part two, he himself does not have any sympathy for people who are below him. He does not uh, go out of his way to give other people the, the benefit of not being ignored or to be treated with dignity and respect in the same way that he wants it. So so it's it's sort of like a pathological. One thing we should add also about him, he's a very, or he considers himself, but I think he's also, this is true about him, he's intelligent and he's <laughs> yeah. very well read. I was going to read a quote. Can I read sure. Can I read a little quote that, that I highlighted yes. uh, for this? Because this, I think, does capture it. At least he, he thinks he's intelligent. He's well uh, read. There's a lot of allusions to also <laughs> right. to the, those that's right, words. That's right, that's right. Yeah. Um, so he says, uh, in the first place, to blame because I am cleverer than any of the people surrounding me. <laughs> I have always considered myself cleverer than any of the people surrounding me, and sometimes, would you believe it, have been positively ashamed of it. At any rate, I have all my life, as it were, turned my eyes away and could never look people straight in the face. So he, he thinks this is owing to him being so much smarter than everybody else. So so the thing that he thinks his intelligence has given him, he says, is this disease of too much consciousness. And he thinks right. any amount of consciousness is a disease, but too much consciousness is like a disastrous disease. And he is. So he contrasts himself with a man of action, what he calls a man yeah. of action, who's they have little to no consciousness. They're very decisive about what justice requires, what honor requires, what morality requires, what's best for them. And it's and he says it's just because they're stupid. They're stupid. Yeah. That's what uh, allows them not to. But if you start, if you have consciousness, you start to reflect on what the bases for those things are, what honor demands or what um, what morality demands or what's best for you. And he, and he says that just leads to inertia. Actually, I'll read a quote there, which I highlighted. Yeah. Um, on the bottom of page 15, he says, after all, the direct legitimate... Oh, right, we have different. Yeah. <laughs> after all, the direct legitimate immediate fruit of consciousness is inertia, that is conscious thumb twiddling. I have referred to it already. I repeat, I repeated emphatically all straightforward persons and men of action are active just because they are stupid and limited. How can that be explained? This way. As a result of their limitation, they take immediate and secondary causes for primary ones, and in that way persuade themselves more quickly and easily than other people do that they have found an infallible basis for their activity, and their minds are at ease. And that, you know, is the most important thing. To begin to act, you must first have your mind completely at ease and without a trace of doubt left in it. Well, how am I, for example, to set my mind at rest? Where are the primary causes on which I am to build? What are my bases? Where am I to get them from? I exercise myself in the process of thinking, and consequently with me, every primary cause at once draws itself, another, still more primary, and so on to infinity. This actually reminds me of the Thomas Nagel, the absurd thing, which was this, which was getting at that same quandary, is if you start asking what justifies this and mm. what justifies that it can, the justification chain can go on forever and this is what 
the underground man is saying, it's, 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 sometimes it sounds like an excuse, is, is the explanation for his inaction and paralysis and just never being able to decide on pretty much anything. Right. And this is so characteristic of, of his, I mean, his character, that it's hard to tease apart what is an excuse and what is, in reality, um, something that, that naturally springs forth from this, this increased consciousness. And I, I'm sympathetic to that. I, I feel like, like there is a sense in which um, being hyper aware of everything does make you, uh, does paralyze you. And it, it reminds me sort of of the, you know, when, when people who study emotions um, describe the value of emotions, right? So the, the reason, and this is, this is Bob Frank's sort of central thesis, and the, re, the reason that emotions are good is because they, by and large, bypass too much deliberation. Right? A lot of emotional reactions, anger, um, fear, um, these are valuable because they they bypass too much conscious deliberation, and um, not surprisingly, these are the emotions that that are the kind that allow you to challenge somebody to a duel, right? right? And allow you, <laughs> you to just too- confidently do it and yep. not understand kind of the wait. Isn't this silly? Isn't this petty? Isn't this something yeah. that's gone out of style? Isn't this? Like, it, like, is there yeah. really, like, I could die for what? Like, for nothing. Right. An insult to your honor yeah. has to become the most important thing that needs to be, yeah. you know, that needs to be uh, satisfied in that moment. You are yeah. willing to risk every single thing. Um, and you, you ignore, you ignore any calculation of cost and benefit. No, this um, is like, this, I mean, we all can relate to this to some degree. Like, you know, ordering at a restaurant. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, like sometimes I will, you know, if I, let's say my family is out and I want to go and I want to watch a movie, I can get so like wrapped up in what is the right movie for me right now and what's good and that I will never, like I'll end up never like not having time to watch it because I've spent so much time sort of trying to justify the choice among all these choices that's him writ large at, in in like some of the most crucial decisions you know that he would make day to day and also like very morally charged decisions have you ever read uh, Antonio Damasio's Descartes' Error? Yes, I love that yeah. book. So yeah, it's a great book. And um, although there is, you know, disagreement about the the interpretation um, for a lot of things by by more modern neuroscientists, I think that the example that he gives of a patient named Elliot is great. Elliot is somebody who has had um, a particular area of his brain uh, receive a lot of damage. It is the area of the brain that at least Damasio thinks is what connects your emotional reactions to your, to your planning. Um, so it's not that they don't experience emotions. It's just that they don't use their emotions as input into decision-making. And Elliot gets completely paralyzed when having to make the most trivial of decisions. So when he says, okay, when should, you know, when's our next appointment? Um, he has to deliberate between whether it should be on a Monday or a Tuesday, even though it doesn't matter. What right. he doesn't have is, is right. the ability to say this, this is a decision that doesn't matter. Let right. me just go. Right. So he is. So it's burden's in, ass kind of. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and that. So this is all just to say that 
I think that it is a right interpretation that if you are too hyper conscious aware, whatever we want to call it, that that um, decision making becomes an action becomes a very, very difficult thing to do. And in that sense, it's a disease and the Damasio like it's a patient. Right. Right. Um, Now, to the extent that this is true of the underground man is you know open to question right to what extent it's true yeah. Uh, yeah but he's saying it's it's true um and like anything this is this is something that i like this is what so like even though he's a he's a character that hopefully we don't relate to too much but all of us can re- relate to aspects of what he's saying and right. experiences that he's describing and that's one of the things i think that keeps this you know something that people continue to read and that our listeners I, will have read the majority uh, absolutely <laughs> um flash episode on pulp fiction coming soon um Dave watching Straw Dogs again. Maybe a, <laughs> a, a Patreon discussion. Fuck, I want to announce it before. before. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, then you'll definitely win. That's the problem. They will the, willingly uh, deny that they have read a, like just, a classic just cause book. Just because they're yeah. on my side. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, no, I've never really been able to relate that much to Dostoevsky's protagonists. Like the depths of their neuroticism are something that is scary and you know maybe you can relate a little bit more because you're neurotic but am i uh, more than you i don't think yeah i don't know i actually don't um but uh but but in the extremes you see truths about the human condition yeah and i was gonna say do you think it's this this um the underground man's claim that knowing the reality being keenly aware of what existence is is that what makes this referred to as as perhaps the first existentialist novel i think it's which we haven't talked about but we're about to get to it's this rebellion against Mm -hmm. the deterministic worldview and this prizing of freedom above all else as the thing that defines modern Man, that's what I right. think, and I think you're right. And it's something that perhaps comes about because of this this so-called increased consciousness. But but what's not clear is that it is something Dostoevsky is championing, as some people have claimed, or something that he is condemning, or something that he is very ambivalent about, which is the view that. I came down I, at the me end. Too. Me too. But, this is... um, uh, we should take a break. We'll be right back to continue talking about part one of Notes from Underground. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you in part by Curiosity Stream. Curiosity Stream is the world's first streaming service addressing our lifelong quest to learn, explore, and understand. It was founded by John Hendricks, the founder of the Discovery Channel. It is a content site that lets you stream over 2,000 documentaries and nonfiction titles from some of the world's best filmmakers, including exclusive originals. Um, And you can watch it on a bunch of different platforms. There's a web app. You can watch it on your Roku box, on an Android, on your Xbox One, iOS, Chromecast, Amazon Fire, Amazon Kindle, Apple TV. It's available worldwide. It has content on science, nature, history, technology, 
society and lifestyle. I was just watching a video on the top uh, science news stories of 2018. Um, and $2.99 a month, uh, I think it's worth it if what you want is quality. Um, for our audience, the first 30 days are completely free if you sign up at curiositystream.com slash VBW and use the promo code VBW during the sign-up process. That's curiositystream.com slash VBW, promo code VBW during the sign-up process for a free month. Thank you, CuriosityStream, for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizard. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, we're continuing our discussion of Dostoevsky's part one of Notes from... Now, you say Notes from Underground, and I know that that's how some translations have it. My translation just says notes from the underground. Oh, see, that's... It does sound more uh, more Russian to say notes from underground. It's also, I think, like, yeah, that's kind of been settled by translators. You just happen to be reading, like... Like a shitty translation? Yeah, well, I mean, like, you know, this Constance like old... Garnett, this old, this British woman who, <laughs> you know, is, like, writing... She did all of them. It was, like, the most impressive translation feat of all time she did like all of Tolstoy she did all like so much of Dostoevsky but mm -hmm. um and and they were all the world had for a while but you know yeah. like she's writing in a different time um although notes from underground just is is not a grammatically <laughs> I just, it just doesn't yeah it does what well, why 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 is it any worse than notes from the underground well because underground is a like a it's not like a proper place. So you'd say like, I'm writing you from America. I'm writing you from the bridge or like, no, no, but, but the underground sounds like a movement notes from underground is like, like no, like if I'm writing in a cellar, I'm underground. So notes from underground. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. I, I grant you or like, cause you British. are, you are more educated than me. Clearly. Um, you are. <laughs> so he, this starts, he, the way he sets up this critique of, of, of a certain worldview that was fashionable at the time and still is. I, the, the reason he, the, the, the bridge to get to that from these opening just remarks that are just, just funny, like he's fucking with us at first. Then it becomes the, it, it takes a more serious turn. And he, when he describes how he, there are times where he comes home and he's humiliated himself, but it feels good that he's humiliated himself. He says he revels in his degradation. He enjoys his degradation. And he says at that point that he's writing these notes to get to the bottom of how that's possible, why he would enjoy his degradation. How could you enjoy being humiliated and degraded like this? And I think you get a roughly, although you have to tease it apart, kind of coherent answer to that question when he starts talking about the, the two views that he's fighting against. So in, the first thing he's fighting against is this kind of deterministic worldview. And he says, uh, but really they will shout at you. There is no use protesting. It is a case of two times two makes four. Nature does not ask your permission, your wishes, and whether you like or dislike her laws, the laws of nature. Uh, whether you like or dislike her laws does not concern her. You are bound to accept her as she is, and consequently also all her conclusions. A wall you see is a wall, etc., etc. 
Good God, but what do I care about the laws of nature and arithmetic when for some reason I dislike those laws and the fact that two times two makes four? Of course I cannot break through a wall by battering my head against it, but if I really do not have the strength to break through it, but I am not going to resign myself to it simply because it is a stone wall and I am not strong enough. So he's painting himself as kind of a heroic figure. So the, the metaphor he's using is the laws of nature, the stone wall that prevents him from being free. Yeah. And, and he paints it. I mean, we have to talk, we should talk about this because yeah. this is combined with this. So the deterministic worldview is combined with this idea that once we understand the laws of nature and once we understand human nature, we can build a society where everyone will act in their own interests and everyone can be uh, happy. And this is, you know, this is a kind of utopianism that started probably with Plato and has continued to this day. But the idea is something, uh, and, and this is what he calls the world of the crystal, crystal palace. We can, with science and reason, knowing what we know, we can gain overwhelming profit and prosperity as long as we do what's in our self-interest, which we will do. And that's the thing that he says, no, we won't. And he says, oh, tell me who first declared, who first proclaimed that man only does nasty things because he does not know his own real interests. And that if he were enlightened, if his eyes were opened to his real normal interests, man would at once cease to do nasty things, would at once become good and noble because being enlightened and understanding his real advantage, he would see his own advantage in the good and nothing else. And we all know that not a single man can knowingly act to his own disadvantage. Consequently, so to say, he would begin to doing good through necessity. Oh, the babe, the person who first said this. Oh, the pure, innocent child. So he's saying, that's not how we are. We don't act that way. We're, we're, we're not just concerned with our own advantage. In fact, we will sometimes knowingly act against our own advantage. And the reason we'll do that is to prove that we're free. This is, I think, that why the existentialists claim him. Like, we right. have to prove that we're free. and if everything has been pinned down and engineered in such a way that that's the only way to prove that we're free by acting against, and that explains human beings penchant for destruction and immorality, and that's something that we will never give up. And he has it to the extreme, but, but he's saying this about human nature itself. This is, this is an indelible part of us. We don't want to be an equation. We don't want to be a piano key. We don't want to be an organ stop. Right. And so we will, if it comes down to it, we will knowingly, perversely act against what our rational self-interest tells us is the right action just to assert our freedom. So, I mean, he's combining those two ideas. One, that determinism is true and two, that understanding the laws of nature that, that cause every action to occur, that we, that understanding the laws of nature will make us act in our self-interest, or is it that he thinks the laws of nature are that human beings act in their self-interest? Yeah, because human beings only do bad things because they don't know their own real self-interest. And that, so, uh, if you want to explain why human beings do destructive, bad things— it's just because they don't understand what their true interests are. And once enlightened, they will. 
So it's a psychological claim uh, that, yeah. that he's reacting against and he's saying is so blatantly false, just so obviously false if you look at the history of humankind. Right. And it's this is the part that I got a little tripped up on because there's nothing in determinism that that needs that requires self-interest um, that, in fact, the laws of nature are such that we understand exactly why people so often violate their own self-interests. Right? Why why people do such irrational things? And maybe this is just a, la- a later a later understanding of human nature. I I take it that rationality yeah. was wrapped up in in determinism somehow. No, 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 him. no, no. So like there are two distinct views, but the idea is yeah, right now people behave in ways that are irrational, and that is part of human psychology. But once you tell them that oh this is right. like once confirmation bias is revealed and people understand it they'll be on the lookout for it once all these biases and you know once mm-hmm. you guys have p-hacked your way to a full understanding <laughs> of all of human nature and all the ways in which we act in ways that are not in our self-interest and the self-interest of others like we'll just now be like oh okay you know Right. Uh, yeah, you know, it's like if you've been drinking bad beer all your life and then someone shows you this is actually good beer, you you don't have to drink Natty Lights right. anymore. And so it is, for him, it is the act of drinking bad beer is qualitatively different once you've already been enlightened about the fact right. that you're drinking bad beer. So then Whereas once... before you were doing it ignorantly. Yes. Now the laws of, the, you know, whatever, that, I mean, this is, again, not quite determinism, but but now that, that it's been made clear to you that that you ought not, right, that rationality dictates that you ought not, then You'll... continuing to drink bad beer is you're shaking your fists at the universe. Exactly. That then it's yeah. asserting your freedom, drinking bad beer right. just because you've now been enlightened at what kind of beer that you would like. And of course, right. this 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 has many permutations. Like he says, but but science will take that into account too. Mm-hmm. And he's he grants right. Yeah, he's, he's not like, being stupid about this. He grants that yeah. that uh, well, if determinism really is true, then any none of what I'm saying matters. <laughs> yeah, but he's saying that we will always. I'm speaking. He he says I, at one point, like I'm speaking from my own perspective. Like I'm I'm like this is my own experience, and I will at any point when science, wherever science is, and whatever science tells me, I will always, out of sheer perversity, and because the thing I value most is my freedom and and a capriciousness. I will do something to go against it. And he thinks that's something human beings share. And that explains why people do degrading things. And and again, this ties back to why he enjoys or why he says he enjoys his degradation and his humiliation. He's painting himself as kind of a heroic figure here. Yeah. And hilariously heroic Yeah, in, in a way that, from external observation is indistinguishable from kind of a weak man. <laughs> exactly. I wanted to uh, get a little bit into the, <clears throat> as I was reading this, like, it came to my attention why you suggested that we read this, why you love this story so much. Oh, yeah. And it's all in this quote. Um, this is still, a, this is in part seven. I say, gentlemen, hadn't we better kick over the whole show and scatter rationalism to the winds? 
simply to send these logarithms to the devil and to enable us to live once more at our own sweet, foolish will. Um, I say, says, gentlemen. There, I that's say, your, gentlemen. I say, gentlemen, hadn't we better kick over the whole show? Um, it's immediately followed up with, that would not matter. <laughs> um, yeah. But this is very, this is Tamler in a nutshell, right? Anytime we bring up anything like algorithms improving uh, on, on human decision-making, anytime we bring up the power of, of logic and consistency, you're always shaking your fist in the way that uh, the underground man is. And I think that you really relate to this. Well, and, so and I, I also have a quote that I highlighted in part seven. So it's funny that you mentioned that. It's not that <laughs> one, though. He says, before I mention this advantage to you, I want to compromise myself personally, and therefore I boldly declare that all these fine systems, all these theories <laughs> for explaining to mankind yes. its real normal interests, so that inevitably striving to obtain these interests, it may at once become good and noble, are in my opinion so far mere logical exercises. Yes, logical exercises. After all, to maintain even this theory of the regeneration of mankind by almost by means of its own advantage is after all to my mind almost the same thing as to claim for instance with buckle although it could be with pinker that through <laughs> civilization mankind becomes softer and consequently less bloodthirsty and less fitted for warfare logically it does not seem to follow from his arguments but man is so fond of systems and abstract deductions that he is ready to distort the truth intentionally. He is ready to deny what he can see and hear just to justify his logic. That to me is like, I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. That's music. It's that last bit I have highlighted as well. Man has such predilection for systems and abstract deductions that he's ready to distort the truth intentionally and he's ready to deny the evidence of his senses only to justify his logic. That has shades of uh Tlone Ukbar or, or yes. Tertius. That's right. Um, exactly. Like and that's yeah. which I said was like my spirit story and that's like my spirit passage. Yeah. You know. Um yeah. So I I, I understand your psychology uh, better from understanding Dostoevsky. But I mean I think this part is is the part that Dostoevsky at least has a big side of him that agrees with. He really thinks that and and because of the book ends with this, like this idea that we need to generalize ourselves, we're ashamed of our individuality, and we need to generalize ourselves, is something that is that really bothers him. And this is the the tension, and it wouldn't be an yes. interesting read if it weren't for the tension that Dostoevsky's no fool. He knows that the truth of determinism. If it is true, if the laws of science and the laws of nature dictate all of our actions, that he is being incoherent, right? That he is actually, that, that his shaking his fists is merely one of the aspects that was determined. Right. And that it, it matters not that he does. And it, in fact, well, it was determined from day one that he would be the sort of person to do it. So, but what would um, be undermined is this idea that human beings, once they're enlightened about their true self-interest, will act in that way. And that's what he says, is like, we'll never do that because we don't want to be reduced to a mathematical equation. And so even if this is the law, ultimately, of human nature, it's a tragic law. 
it is a and, and like he makes it almost like a problem of evil right it's like yeah why would we why would we be created in such a way that when we're enlightened to our true interests through science and reason we would want to rebel against that but that's just our personality and yes it could be determined but it what it does do is like take any idea of this kind of utopianism and make it seem like very naive right well i mean but this is the thing is that if that's the case then it would just simply be the wrong the wrong theory of human nature that they have Right. One could say, as I think is true, you know, if you are to take some ultra rational view, like the 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 sort of straw manny economists' uh, view that people are driven solely by self interest, or that, or the the view, say something like a Josh Green view, that once people realize that consequentialism is true, then we won't we won't do these these we won't make these silly errors of deontological logic or um that 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 is a separate claim from the claim of determinism and it is one that i think does drive did drive people's desire for this utopia that oh if we learn enough about human nature we can we can make everybody act good behave well um right you could be a total pessimistic determinist yeah i don't think he is so it's these two things that are conjoined that he's rebelling against but in some ways the thing that he's rebelling against most because he agrees i can't break the stone wall so but he says the thing that he's rebelling against most or that he says he is is this idea that we will always act in our own self-interest. No, we are designed, and maybe deterministically so, in such a way that we will act perversely just to prove that we're not piano keys. Right, which is which is a different take than what some people uh, have argued, which is that by, by unlocking the ability to reason, we are shaking our fists at our human nature that that it is only upon realizing that we are capable of say determining the most rational way to act that we have something that the animals don't we're exerting our humanness and our freedom by um failing to fall prey to stupid biases um but but clearly you know the yeah. underground man finds these constraining that the that the the mathematical analogy is is the is the great one like he wants 2 plus 2 to equal 5 yeah fuck you but 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 so to be clear though the reason i think that he's against that view that you're describing that the thing that is our rebellion is acting according to reason instead of our yeah. ingrained is because we would be like everybody else then we would be we would lose our individuality our individuality right yeah. right and that's um, the thing we, that he says, at least. Again, all this, I think, is is kind of undermined, or at least, you know, it, it's there's counterpoints when you read the second part. But, like, I, I, I think that um, what he says is, no, we want to be individuals. And the only way to yeah. retain that is to go against reason and ha- and like our and let our own idiosyncratic, irrational desires um guide us. Right. So another quote from part seven, but very often and even most often, choice is utterly and stubbornly opposed to reason. 
And, and do you know that that too is profitable, sometimes even praiseworthy? Yeah, um, exactly. And uh, <laughs> I love his, the best definition of man is the ungrateful biped. <laughs> so, so this, whatever that tension is, that between between this this view, this utopian deterministic rationalist view of the world, um, and his sort of understanding that that maybe perhaps we are constrained, but he's going to do whatever he can at least to not feel constrained, does become hilarious when you realize that his acts of rebellion are <laughs> behaviorally indistinguishable from the acts of like a just a dumbass. <laughs> It's not even just a dumbass. It's it's like uh, somebody that's <laughs> like a petty sort of like yeah, like that just never got laid in yeah a in small a, person yeah like he's a small person uh, and full of ressentiment. I mean, like I mm-hmm. think this is this guy captures, is that French for resentment? <laughs> it's the Nietzschean <laughs> term that I'm referring to there, mm-hmm. but like. Like, this is what he's doing, right? And you, I think you see this clearly in part one, although I think you see it even more clear. Clearly it comes out, but, like, he is taking vices of his and turning them into virtues. He is taking his weakness and his insecurity and his vanity and making it heroic and making it virtuous. That is the, the kind of Nietzschean idea of what ressentiment, the idea of slave morality. But this is like slave existentialism or something. This is <laughs> right. like you are taking your own personal pathologies and making them into some sort of heroic rebellion against the laws of nature. <laughs> like that's like you said, it would just be. It would be sophomoric if it didn't have that element throughout, like again, right. even in part one, you see that, but in part right. two, I think it becomes even more, that part becomes more clear. Right. But it is a very, very good, if you want to just take it as a, an objection, like a description of why people object to determinism when they're told yes. that, that human behavior is much like twice two makes four. Um, <clears throat> so at the very last, the very last, uh, Paragraph of part seven. Good heavens, gentlemen, what sort of free will is left when we come to tabulation and arithmetic, when it will all be a case of twice two makes four? Twice two makes four without my will, as if free will meant that, right? As if Uh, free will meant that, right? That's such a key, like, as it, like, that's what they're saying. So he's acknowledging your definition of freedom Mm -hmm. that you said it's like, no, what makes us free is that we're rational. He's like, no. Like I'd like this would be rational without me, right? Yep, like that's right. And I'm constrained. If there's if there is only one, if you know, if the shortest route to the grocery store is the logical one to take, you have made me only have one route to the grocery store. So I'm going to go the fucking long way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, know? Uh, we, you know, by the way, we for loyal listeners, you'll know this, but on episode 150, we talked with Paul a bit about this, um, and you you alluded to notes from the underground. Um, I notes from underground notes from underground, (laughs) but notes from the underground sounds cool because it sounds like he's a rapper, you know, who wears a backpack and doesn't sell a lot of albums. Right. But that's like, not what he is. (laughs) He is. (laughs) Well, he doesn't sell a lot of albums. (laughs) Another, another quote, uh, Twice makes four. Twice two makes four is a cocky young man who stands with hands on hips, barring your path and spitting. Yeah. I admit that twice two makes four is an excellent thing, but if we were to give everything it's due, twice two makes five is sometimes a very charming thing too. Yeah. 
And uh, this is what I think is is absolutely absurd. This is an embracing of the absurd. Um, but I get it, right? I mean, I get what he's saying. I get the sentiment. I think that at the end of the day, Dostoevsky has to know that he's he's only reacting to a truth that he cannot possibly. Like, there's nothing in this in the world that can actually make twice two make five. Well, but so that's the thing. But he's saying this is that problem of evil thing. So that he says, like, I look, I would love to just accept and be happy with the fact that twice two makes it's not not twice two. That should tell you that your translation is bad. Two it's times actually two, more poetic. Two times two, two makes uh, maybe. <laughs> Uh, who's the elitist now? Russian uh, li- Russian listeners should chime in. And then he says, but like, I can't, like, I, that's not who I am. And he's saying that's not w- what human beings are. Like, we're not satisfied with that. And he says, why then am I made with such desires? Can I have been made simply in order to come to the conclusion that the whole way I am made is a swindle? Can this be my whole purpose? And I actually read about this, like, I guess he had put some stuff that, you know, Dostoevsky has a Christian side, and apparently he had some stuff that was cut out by censors, which he didn't like, that was saying, gesturing towards a Christian solution. And Dostoevsky was saying, they they left all my, like, nihilistic atheist stuff in, but they didn't leave the gesturing towards, like, what's wrong with them, you know? (laughs) It, it reminded me of like when uh, South Park, the movie, uh-huh. they their the first title was South Park One Hell of a Movie, and <laughs> the like MPAA wouldn't accept that, and so then they did South Park Bigger Longer Uncut, which is much dirtier. <laughs> And, <laughs> that's right yeah and, and, but they were okay with that he was like they they just allowed a, the one that was way dirtier and more sexual you know i don't know if this is an apocryphal story uh i just quickly tried to look it up but but you know when dostoevsky was imprisoned um <laughs> that he <laughs> that's not funny no i know but you know what this is reminding me of is the office <laughs> where david brent is like going to the guy talking about Dostoevsky and then the guy knows more than him and so he always kind of leaves and then comes back with some new fact <laughs> um, yeah so that's how you see me. you see me as David Brent yeah. well no both of us probably <laughs> I have a like, fact I have a fact yeah um, uh, that that apparently he asked somebody for Kant's critique of pure reason and they sent him the New Testament instead. <laughs> so uh, this is supposedly the heart, the, the heart of his, his Christianity, or at least his familiarity with Christianity. But also, clearly he liked Kant. Well, I mean... I, I have to think that this is... This is that's like the, the Josh Green secret joke of Kant's soul. <laughs> you know, like, he was just telling Christians that they were right, essentially. <laughs> um so yeah so i i i think i'm convinced now that that part two does add an important layer to the story um that this what he does you know what he does with this mindset this uh this rebellion against twice two makes five um (laughs) is 
very different <laughs> in practice than what you might expect from his from his self-described heroism um, in part one. And it's also like, yeah, and I think it can be seen as a kind of, we'll talk about this more next episode, but like a kind of rationalization. Absolutely. There was, when we read um, one of the Borges, uh, the, the Library of Babel, and we, there was a phrase there about justifying one's life, looking yeah. for the book that would justify one's life. Yeah. There is a phrase here in part two as well about justifying uh, and, and, might call it rationalizing um but it's like he has he he's smart enough to have constructed a philosophical position to kind of be able to live with himself and his actions exactly that's i think and i think so that's one i think way like and we'll go into details on that um next time but um so I mean, one of the things I want to think about is what is the underground man's if he has a true position? I mean, he's right. called by Dostoevsky a paradoxicalist at the end, right. um, which I think is a very good way of describing him. But does he have a coherent position? And then I think a more interesting question than that, because I think that one is more that I don't think he has one. That's, that's the problem of his consciousness. Like he keeps going back and forth. He's never settled, but what is Dostoevsky doing with this? And is he taking sides here or is he taking a coherent view? And what's the import of the fact that he puts himself at the beginning and the end of this is a really interesting question that I'm excited to talk about. Yeah. Agreed. Um, you know, I kept meaning to say this, but it reminds me of, you know, when William James um, was confronted with what he thought was the truth of determinism, right? He, he thought the science of psychology can't exist unless determinism is true. Yeah. He he famously said that his first act of free will would be to believe in free will. Yes. Um, that was his that, rebellion. That was his rebellion. And, and again, a, a very internally inconsistent way of rebelling but but right. somehow the same sentiment um with with less with less literary beauty <laughs> less, <laughs> less kind of self-degradation but next time uh we will be back to talk more about part two there's just a lot in there also just i love the structure of it, these three stories of my life yeah right? like, and uh, they're all <laughs> So uncomfortable, so uncomfortable for different reasons. I mean, for I guess the first reasons. two are for similar reasons. the The last one is where, yeah, uh, yeah, it's 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 very hard. Hey, uh, does it bother you that the prostitute's name is Liza? You know, until you said that. <laughs> <laughs> but now, uh, yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I guess Eliza. You know, like also Eliza Doolittle, like it, it right. is this kind of like comes up from a very like working class environment where their <laughs> father like sells them essentially <laughs> is willing to sell them to slavery in order That's to right. <laughs> like what the fuck? You're prepping her. You're unwittingly <laughs> prepping her for the inevitability of you just selling her off to pay your debts. Well, so join us, you know, support us on Patreon. Save Liza. <laughs> Save Liza. Free Liza. Just join us next time on Very Bad Wizards.